Welcome to Hope Beyond the Badge, a podcast that brings awareness, inspiration, and conversation together for first responders, families, and others interested in mental well-being in first response. New episodes weekly with your hosts, Jay Bailey and Linda Kokoros. Jay is a father, a military veteran, worked in the fire service for 18 years, and carries a diagnosis of PTSD. Linda is a mom, a wife, a certified life coach for first responders, and a suicide loss survivor of a first responder. Let's talk about it. Today's guest is police officer Joe Rizzuti. Joe is a military veteran, retired police officer, and author of the book A Cop's Life. In that book, Joe shares his experience as a police officer and explains how he became became overwhelmed with stress, began experiencing PTSD symptoms, began to overindulge in alcohol, and how he overcame it all. In retirement, Joe dedicates much of his time to helping fellow first responders recover from their own traumatic reactions and guides them towards health and wellness. Joe, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. We really appreciate it. We're looking forward to talking to you about your book, your experiences, and uh, welcome. Please take a minute to introduce yourselves to our guests. Or First, to our honor audience. to be here, and thank, thank you for, for having me. Great intro. It's um, you know, I love what you're doing. I've been retired now, believe it or not, for eleven years. I was a police officer in the city of Revere, Massachusetts. Um, prior to that, as you know. Uh, my brother, of the troops, father of troops, I served uh, with the National Guard as a full-timer and uh, part-timer as a military cop. Um, we both went through that wonderful place called Fort McCullen. Uh, the best education I ever got in my life. Um, best thing I ever did in my life. Um, and I retired out on an injury. Um, my boss said I got hit by everything but the number. Um, <laughs> and... Uh, been involved in a lot of critical incidents and Linda too. I am a survivor. My, my best, one of my friends on the job took his own life. Um, Sorry for your loss, sir. Sierra 23, Sergeant Peter Papsidora. I got to say his name because uh, he was a true gentleman and he was one of my inspirations. Um, I've been involved in peer support since 96, but after Peter's death and actually prior to that, it was Brian Chait, who was a military cop that committed suicide was my first. And, uh, and unfortunately, we've had others, but I really started after Peter's death to really get involved in, in trying to figure out how we can stop the madness. And yeah. uh, we're trying, and you people are doing the same thing. Yes, absolutely. Um, uh, you know, I can relate with um, with what you're saying there. Um, after we, we lost Alex, um, it was the same thing. It was, you know, either I'm going to walk around in shame after, you know, the loss of Alex and you know, t- just saying the word suicide at the beginning was very, very hard. Um, again, also for fear of being judged, I suppose, that stigma right out there. But, um, you know, I realized very quickly that talking about it was the only way um, for me to start healing, but also to make it easier for others to be able to seek help um, and, and go forward with that. But thank you for sharing that, Joe. I really appreciate that. Yeah, and we've got some mutual friends, uh, 
the Betzes. Who we do. I, I, I think the world of you know David, his wife, and you know, and the work that we're doing. My, my myself and my partner that I work with, Jay McKeon up at Onsite. We, as you know, I talked to you about the hypothesis that we we developed on yep. first responder suicides as it relates to relationships and and, and uh, undiagnosed childhood traumas. But that was all work because of people like you, the the alliance because of. Uh, People, the, the the clinical alliance of the civilian clinicians and the first responder world yeah. coming together to yeah. try to make a difference. So, Absolutely, yeah. and and you know, exciting it, stuff. It does, and it takes a village, right? Um, yes. And the more we get people on board with this, well, then the more awareness, and we can just keep talking about it. Yeah, for sure. You want to chime in, Jay? Absolutely, um, Joe. I'm going to read something from the cover of your book to you. Uh, it says in part of the foreword, a true story of growing up with a learning disability yes. and overcoming the odds to become a police officer in one of the wildest police departments in America. Now, as I was reading the book, I noticed as a thread throughout it, uh, you would you would reference um, you would reference that learning disability mm. and. It was not lost on me uh, that that I was reading it in a book that you wrote with a learning disability, right? So yeah, that's the whole point. Yeah. Uh, yeah so I mean, it uh, that must have been a tremendous, uh, felt like quite an achievement. I'm wondering if you wouldn't mind taking us back, and I, I have a learning disability as well too. I, I grew up with a learning disability diagnosed at a young age. Do you mind taking us all the way back and telling us what it was like growing up being a child with that learning disability? And I'm I'm sure we'll talk more about how it affected your life. Um, later on as we go forward in the interview. Yeah, thanks. Uh, yeah, well, growing up in the 70s, and, and I grew up in the city of Riviera. My parents uh, was, you know, were, were divorced, and I, I grew up in the, if you've seen The Sopranos, it was half Sopranos and half, um, you know, <laughs> awesome craziness. The city of Riviera, is, it's a sitcom. It's unique. It's awesome. It's a great place. It was a great place to grow up. It was a great place to work. But having a learning disability in the 70s, they, as you know, they generalized you and they put you in a room with all sorts of other disabilities. Um, and you became a, a behavioral issue. And I was a behavioral issue because I was frustrated. I couldn't learn. And my brain was wired differently. Um, and the behavioral issue became um an issue with me in school. Uh, it probably led to some of my drinking as a teenager. Um, I talk about, I'm open about, I was assaulted as a kid, um, which didn't help matters worse. And I can, and, and, and thank God, that, you know, for the onsite Academy and me getting help up there through them. Um, and he never talked about it uh, until I was like 45 years old, but the learning disability had a lot to do with that. And if it wasn't for some of the great teachers that I had, and I say that because I'm, I'm thinking I just reconnected with my high school teacher um, and she's an her and her husband are amazing people. And we talk about psychologists and I know Jay, you're, you're going to school, but her husband was like a father to me. Um, Vinny Maleko, Vincent Maleko, his name is, her name is Christine race. I got to give them a shout out. Um, because if it wasn't for them, I wouldn't be who I am. Um, they took the time and the patience to encourage me to go on, um, to do things. You know, I spelled cat, as you see the book, I spelled cop with a K. That's yes. a true story. And that wasn't, you know, as you know, in MP school, I got caught. I, I was I was pretty good at hiding my learning disability. I did well in the ASAB, and uh, I got caught at, at the MP school at the writing. I, I was because you know, I can't write. My hand, my hand and eye coordination are horrible. Right, so they called me in. But the military is awesome. They got me a tutor and they got me through it. 
Um, so that's, you know, when I was young, I didn't, I didn't, I had the teachers to support me, but I was on my own. If you ever told me I'd write a book, I couldn't write a sentence up until 10 years. I mean, probably 20 years ago. Um, and and I came into a profession that's all writing and I'm going to tell you, it reared its head in the police department, um, to the point that I had a, I, I, I'm not proud of it, but I had a, take an MCAD complaint against a Lieutenant that was pretty nasty to me. You know, he, he was one of those guys, Jay, we all know that the red pen people that want to show you how great they are with English. Um, I'd rather get shot at and and fight a hundred people than deal with those idiots. (laughs) Um, because they're, they're frustrating. They don't have any Take you know patience for for people. Compassion. Uh, like, uh, yeah. Yeah. So so that's where I ended up, and 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 all through my life, I've had some strong people behind me that supported me. Um, and you talk about the book. There was kind of a challenge. I was going through some tough times, um, and I challenged myself to write a book. I always wanted to write a book, and thanks to some of the technology now called Dragon and all this voice to text stuff, um, it opened up a whole world for me. I couldn't even write an email. I was embarrassed, but uh, I recently went back and got my LADAC license, and I went from barely graduating uh, college um, to getting a three six six, and wow. uh, that's because of you know applying myself and having the tools. So the book was meant for anybody that's out there that has a learning disability. If you can put your mind to something, you can do anything. Um, and I became a police officer. I was a very successful Army National Guard recruiter uh, to the point, you know how much the paperwork is on, on recruiting contracts. Um, and that they were great to me. They had people help me do my paperwork. As long as I brought the bodies in, mm. they had people to do it. And, and, and the same with the Re- Re- police department. I've had some, Amazing people helped me along the way. And and that's why I'm giving back. That's why I wrote the book. Thank you, for sh- Joe. Thank you for sharing that um, with us. I, I just want to get into that a little bit more with you. Um, as far as like getting into the police department, taking that disability um, with you into, into a police department. But also, I want to talk about like you wanting to become a police officer. Did you all... I'll always know that you wanted to be a police officer. I'm no? going to put a big smile on Jay's face. Yeah. Oh yeah. I, I, it starts in the seventies. My, my biological dad was a two bit wise guy. Uh, um, you know, I the earliest days watching one Adam 12 in emergency. The truth of the matter is I wanted to be a firefighter. My family mm. are all firefighters. Um, I don't do heights and I did get called for the fire department. My uncle was a big, part of my life, 42 year guy down at Revere Fire, retired truck guy. My brother-in-law is LA County Fire. Um, my cousins are all on fire. I do have a cousin who's a trooper. We all have one in our family. Um, but uh, great people. And I just fell in love with the police work and it was the TV shows. And it was also seeing the police officers in my neighborhood that were larger than life. Um, that were just amazing people. And, uh, that one Adam 12, to this day, I'll never forget Adam 12, you know, chips and, and Beretta and Colombo and, <laughs> yeah. and then of course we, we come online with Hill street and, and then of course cops, I mean, who can forget cops? It brought us in, uh, into the real world of policing. Um, yeah. so, and yeah, and, and a true story was, um, I had this teacher named Jack McCarron, World War II vet, had uh, lost his leg in, in, in the Battle of the Bulge. He had this gentleman come in that looked like um, he was homeless. And it was one of the, you know, a, a class of people had problem reading. And come to find out he was a uh, 
undercover mass state trooper. And um, that was it. My I, my senior year, a switch was snapped. I went from being a problem to, to you know devoting my life to become a police officer, and nothing was nothing was going to get in my way. And it started with the military police corps. Um, and my my dad was a national guard recruiter, believe it or not. My stepdad and uh, he wanted me to go in to get a trade. Um, I took the ASAP, did well. He laughed when I come home and told him I was going to be an MP because he knew, you know, the school is very tough. It's yep. strict. It's pay attention to detail, which is when you have a learning disability, it's just, it's not conducive yeah. to MP school. So yeah, it was not an easy task getting through the school, but I did it. And it was, and that was set my foundation. I was at, if I could accomplish that, I could accomplish anything. Yeah. So, can I ask you then a little bit about that, like getting, you said that you always wanted to be a police officer, but you went into the military police, right? Yeah. Did that set some, like, structure for you? Like, did oh, it give you? Because I, yeah. I know Jay shared with us in, in his interview, um, you know, very early on that he was he was craving structure and, mm. and the military, you know, gave that to him. Can you share with us a little bit about yeah, that? Yeah, it's it's funny you say that because as we get older, we lose that structure and we lose that routine. And routine is something that you know, us in the fire service, police service, we we depend on, right? So mm. it's what we depend on, and we kind of lose it in retirement. That sense of purpose too, you know, getting you know, something simple as getting up, making your bed, and working out yeah. the habits that we have to continue. The military gave me that. All I had to do is show up and put out, and that was it. Yeah. And I was part of a family. Uh, it was part of a family like no other family. I just couldn't get enough of it. Yeah. And um, so so that made you want to then get into the, you know, follow again with structure. Was it going into the police? Was that also then a continuation of that for you? You felt that oh, yeah. was going to give you the structure oh, yeah, that you still craved? Yeah. Tell us I, like, I don't, sorry, you go ahead. I, I don't think so much it was it's the structure. It was the sense of community and giving back mm. uh, for me. Um, it's corny as it sounds. Um I really, I grew up in a family. My grandfather was assistant superintendent. My uncle firefighters. My dad was, in the, my stepdad was in the military. The sense of service. I was, I knew I wasn't going to Harvard. So, um, and I believed in giving back and believed in helping people. Um, and I also loved the idea. Uh, I come from a gun background where I shot competitive trap and skeet. Um, I got paid a lot of money to chase bad guys with brand new cruises and, and I have fun. I was a, it was the best job of my life uh, and I miss it every day. And I tell people, um, it's, it's the front row seat to the greatest show on earth. And unfortunately it does damage to us. There's no doubt in my mind, right? We, we have, we have to accept that. I think we're doing a better job. Um, but you're not ever going to stop a true first responder from ever going back and doing the job. Yeah. Jay knows he's got a smile on his face. Yeah. Yeah. I'm absolutely about. relating to what you're saying. Yes. Yeah. It, it, it was described to me, you know, I work with some amazing people and we talked about one of them earlier and I, I got a great partner I work with up at Onsite, but I describe it, it is an addiction. It, it's, it's, I'm not going to see too graphic, but it's, it's having that mistress. They go into work every night. It's, it's, it's that we, we heard somebody call it, it was the sexual orgasm of, of being going to these calls. It was the adrenaline dump. It was the, it's, it's nothing. It's going to that work and fire. Jay knows you go to that work and fire. You get that call of the gun call. There is nothing like it in the, well, there is something like it in the world, but it's, it, it's, it's amazing. And until you've done it, yeah, there's, there is a chemical reaction to, to that type of, um, you know, intensity and an environment changing rapidly. And, yep. um, 
and and it's addicting. Yeah, it's, it is. Yeah, and it's it's amazing, and, and we talk about it all the time. And it's it's when you when you lose it, and it's not there, and it's cut short on you. It's it's something that I work with first responders who uh, you know uh, myself. There's Mario Oliveira that does great work with the violently injured officer program. Yeah. Um, it's when you retire, it's it's tough. It's it's tough. It's a grieving process. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And I can hear the passion in your, in your, you know, your voice for your, your love for the job that you did um, mm. for many years. Let's, let's take it back to the beginning, becoming a young police officer. Um, here you are coming out of, you know, um, the military um, and then becoming a police officer. Was, did you go right in to policing right after or did, was it a while well, back in the day, you had to have a high school and you had to have veteran status. Um, I took the test a couple of times and near misses um, and then finally got the call. Um, and I actually got the call for fire, police, um, state police. And I had just come out of the military. I was ETS and I was going from active National Guard, full-time guard to part-time guard. And I really didn't feel like going to another state police type run academy. Well, little did I know I'd be going through a state police run academy. Um, I would have just went to the troopers, but I always wanted to be a Revere cop. Mm. Uh, there was something about giving back to my city. My city is unique. The police department, by all means, is unique. It was a great place to work. It was a dream dream come true. Um, and I worked a year without, it's funny, we worked a year without an academy. Back in the day, they put you right to work. Mm. Um, I worked the wagon. Uh, I worked inside. And then a year later, we went to the academy when there was a spot. Um, so we I was the old school guys. I got to work with guys, um, you know, before, you know, I had, it was, it was no probationary period for me. Um, you just come out of, you come out of the academy and I went right to work. So tell us a little bit about that as a young police officer and also with a, a, a disability, right? A learning disability. So share with us what that was like as a young police officer. Are we excited on the job? Tell us. Bring us, yeah. bring us, share with our listeners. Remember, we, I, we read your book, so we 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 know a bit about that. But share with our listeners that I, I don't loved, know. I love that first night going back. You know, with the coffee spilled, and I talk about the story where yeah. I get this brand new uniform on, and um, it was you know all just coming right out of the academy, my first day back, and uh, you know I, I lived in the beachfront section, and you know getting to work early, um, showing up early, you know, shot, you know, freshly press uniform. Yeah. I'm looking in the mirror. I can't believe it. I, I really, it was a dream come true. I'm looking in the mirror and I stop at Dunkin' Donuts, you know, copping his donut <laughs> coffee, right? And uh, at the time, all I could afford was an S10 pickup with a standard stick, right? And um, it's a unique challenge to drive a stick and drink coffee. Well, you know, here I am pulling in the back of the station and uh, and what do you think? I'm so nervous. I spilled a coffee all over myself. So that, that was my you know, good thing I got there earlier. I was able to clean up, but um, I, I joke about it because that's was the typical. That's how my career would be. I had a laugh about it. Yeah. Um, that particular night was kind of unique. Um, I worked for a ch uh, my lieutenant was a friend of the family's all my life. I write about it. I had met him. Um, I was on a first grade field trip in '71, and I meet him. And I'll never forget. He was a patrolman working inside. And I go to work for the guy afterwards. How crazy is that? Wow. Um, Salvi Santoro, he's still alive. And uh, he sends me out by myself. He says, listen, you got to be back in at four in the morning to cover the radio. So he's going to leave. Don't get in trouble. And um, 
one of the first things I do is I pull over a car. Uh, I think it's in the book. It uh, sure um, is in the book. <laughs> yeah, it's, I pull over a car, and it, there's a backstory to that. We're my neighborhood, um, and it was two gentlemen have they were having oral sex um, in a car, and uh, you welcome to the big show, right? This is the real world, um, and I honestly, I, I, trying to be professional, I, I'm still a revere guy at high. I, I just walked back to my cruise and I started laughing. Yeah. I couldn't believe that this was happening, right? And um, but the sad part of that, and there's a story backside of that story, that parking lot is where I was assaulted as a kid. And I used to go there. Um, and I was I was told by one of the therapists up in on site, I used to go there, you know, to park and you know, that was my spot for years. Mm. And that was one of the first places ironically I would go to check. To, you know, and uh, to, to make sure nobody else was getting hurt down there. And, and, and I couldn't understand why I was going back to that parking lot all the time. And this is a parking lot where if you know anything about a VFW, um, that's where you you get married. That's where you die. That's where you have your social engagements. It's no longer there. That's where we played stickball. That's where we drank. Um, so that parking lot was, uh, there was some importance to me going back to that parking lot. And I read about it in the book, you know, it's uh, my old neighborhood. So can you share with us a little bit about that? Um, being assaulted as a kid, if, if you're comfortable? I, yeah, I can now. I, I mean, I, I, from what I can talk about is it was just one of these things where I was in the wrong place at the wrong time. And uh, I don't think I ever shared it on a public forum like this, but you know, I could say this like wrong place, wrong time. And was just taken advantage of by a bunch of older kids, and yeah. and the deed was done. And I never yeah. talked about it. But what's kind of crazy is I'm, I'm here to say that, you know, there's a lot of us first responders to come into this business that were assaulted. And one of the programs that I keep talking about, the Onsite Academy, they recognized this early on, back 20 years ago, and they developed programs. And I was one of the first to go through a program up there. Um, and it's been a game changer. And I'm able to help other people um, mm. because it. Um, I, I had to confront. I mean, I actually confronted one of the, my, the persons that assaulted me. He blamed me for not getting on the fight department. Um, and I froze. I was that little kid again. But I talk about it. I mean, and that's why we come on the job, right? We come on the job because we want to help people. Yeah. Um, and, and that's what that was about, you know, yeah. and uh, well, full circle. You. Thank you for sharing that, Joe. And, yeah. and you are right. I mean, a lot of first responders or police officers, you know, I think we talked about that in another interview, Jay. Um, someone shared that a lot of first responders or police officers in general do yeah. have childhood trauma that's not addressed. And um, until much later on in life, um, when they start a, a healing process and, and that all sort of comes to the surface um, to be able to start healing. Um, I think Jonathan Hickory talked about that. Yes, ma'am. I did, um, and and, and yeah. that was the when, when I work with you know my my partner when she brought up this word called Lamaris, and we were working something together. We had just started to. I've known her for ten years, and we just started to work together. Um, just you know, like the last year, and I we started seeing the Lamaris as a relationship issue of past child undiagnosed childhood traumas, lack of sleep, and then we started seeing some of the other common denominators: uh, financial um, relationships, and we started seeing uh, substance abuse. So we started seeing all our uh, suicide ideations and plans. We started seeing th these red flags mm. so what we did is we um i wrote them down and i actually the first person i took to was dr duggan and he says well write this big new world cut off hypothesis down and i kind of put it on paper and at the time i was going to um 
Nashville for a large conference for first responder wellness with the FOP over a thousand. And I ran it by everybody down there. I tortured people. And then I ran it by first help. Um, Joe Wills and those guys over yep. at first help. Yeah. Very familiar okay. with these guys. Yeah. yeah Steve used great guys. I ran it by them. Yep. And then we ran it by the VA and they were like, where did you, and Tom Coughlin and the guys from New York. And they're like, where'd you come up with that? And loose licensure. And, and I says, I work with this amazing civilian clinician and she brought it to my attention. And then I brought my world into it. So we, we kind of get this profile now. And now we're able to say, listen, if you see some of these common denominators, um, you got to ask the question, have you ever had suicidal thoughts? Mm. Um, because I believe, um, the, I believe honestly, what a lot of our people that have the, the thoughts or the plans, you're going to see a lot of that, that profile there. Um, yeah. because it just makes sense. Yeah. I mean, if, if you don't have a place to turn and Jay, we talk about this all the time. If you don't have a safe in the stigma, if you don't have a place to turn and a culturally competent, there's the big word, culturally competent, yeah. uh, clinician that knows what they're doing. If you go to the wrong clinician, they're going to do a lot of damage. That's why it's important. Uh, and, and people like, um, the people we work with, um, they'll identify it. That's why officer wellness checks right now are so important. Um, these, these first responder wellness check-ins. Um, with the right people, we're able to maybe catch on to some of this stuff. Yeah. What, what, what we're doing is it's not working. We got to try something. That's the way I look at it. Absolutely. And, and what works, right? And what figuring out what's helping other people so they can start healing, right? Yeah. And if someone's yeah. healing from a process that's working, well, then why not share it with others um, so that they can use it too? Yeah, because we we come on the job with we, we come on there, and if we don't take care of it, we're going to develop, as you know, it, in the line of work we do. We're just going to pile on the traumas, and if you don't know yeah. how to debrief it or talk about it, it's going to show sooner or later. And it showed with alcoholism with me. Yeah, you know. Let's talk about that. Let's get into that. Um, sure. Like your career as a police officer, and then we can get into all the stuff that sure. you're doing because I know you're doing absolutely amazing stuff. So let's talk about your career and how the trauma of the job for you related in behaviors um, like alcohol and all that other stuff. Let's share that. And, and what, were, what, were, what were the traumas that you were experienced that was it what, cumulative of one or was it cumulative of many or was it one that really set you, you it know, was hit? a combination, a couple of things that were happening. I, I came from a police department at the time. It was suffering from a lot of corruption. Uh, it was frustrating being an honest cop working for a command staff that came out of the 70s that basically stole the, the promotional exams. So I was working for some incompetent people, um, which is okay. They let me do my job. There were some great people. But it was frustrating there. And then um, the calls started coming in because Revere is a busy city. And when I couldn't process them, I did what we we know how to do is we drink. Yeah. Right? Choir practice. I, was, I wasn't really on. Choir, choir practice, practice again. That's the word. Yeah. For the for our listening public, choir practice is basically where we debrief with alcohol with other members. Like it's mm -hmm. a diffusing with alcohol. We go to everybody has a Chinese restaurant. I was the ours was the August Moon, which I used to go to as a kid. That's how I wanted to be a Riviera cop. These guys were having fun. They had all the good, the women. They look at these guys at the bottom. I want to be one. And I became one of them. And I realized these guys weren't too happy. Yeah, it really wasn't. They weren't <laughs> they happy. They were, yeah. yeah. <laughs> You know, wow. Uh, um, and it became one. And it, it became one. It became the leader of, I think, the pack down there. But um, 
And then sadly, they closed the place and it became a church. It actually does to God. It became a church. It's a Brazilian church on, the, on 107. And, yeah. Wow. Um, but yes. Yeah. So what happens is I, um, I had a couple of traumas. I could pinpoint them where it happened, where uh, a third of July, second year in the job, um, you know, I had a bunch of calls right off that were tr pretty heavy, but the one that did it was a, a, I had a, a young three-year-old that was digitally assaulted. Um, and I didn't even know what that word meant. And I had to handle the case myself because it was the third of July and there was nobody around. And uh, that one, you know, I kept a Polaroid the picture of this little girl in my pocket. And then I think after that, I had an assault where uh, the kid was taking my gun out of my holster. I took a pretty good beat. And there was a, a couple of them. Well, and, I was, and I was drinking and I was acting. And I wasn't, I was kind of acting cuckoo on the job. Like, you know, I, I was fighting the administration a lot. Mm -hmm. um, I was being the union guy. always always throwing a rock at the administration. And finally they said, um, was this a build-up, Joe? Was it like building up? Like yeah, for, I mean, my first four years, yeah, it, it started slowly. But what happened was, it, 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 it we were so short-handed and so busy. Um, I just got caught in the in the wave where I just loved the job and I kept re-traumatizing, but I didn't know how to process it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I didn't have anybody to trust to talk to. Um, and then, thank God, they sent me to this this gentleman named Dr. Barry. At the time, he was like 110, um, and he had, <laughs> he, had, he had started the Boston Police Peer Support Unit. And it's a funny story with this. So he did my pre-employment uh, psychological, and he gets me there, and he, I'm sitting in front of him, and he, he makes me write an essay. Now, I got to learn this ability. Yeah. Where do you think this is going? Yeah. So he sees it, and he starts to yell at me. And I think, well, maybe this is a test because I wanted to go over the desk to beat the shit out of him. I mean, I'm like, this maybe this is a test. This is the anger management test, right? <laughs> and no, he was seriously, he talked about, you know, this guy up in New Hampshire and Forrester and this guy and Jack Kerouac. I'm like, listen, dude, I just want to get get back to work, you know? Yeah. And not that I was out of work, but so he recommends me to these two hippies, he called them, that were up in Gardner, Mass, yep. being Hayden Val Dunham. Yeah, man. And, and that was it. And then... uh I show up there. My boss sends me up there thinking that it's an academy. And this is a true story. You can ask Caden about it. I had a Ford Temple. Remember the old Ford Temple? Small, oh, yeah. little compact guy. I had a case of ammunition, an AR-15, and a shotgun. Pack of cigarettes, which we weren't. I think I was just grandfather then. I go up looking for the on-site. At the time, it was two duplexes in Gardner. And I pull in, and these bunch of guys smoking behind the building. It looked like you know one flew over the cuckoo's nest. They're out there smoking. I get out. I go, this is the on-site. I go get my stuff. They're like, what are you doing? Put that back. This is a mental health place. I want nothing to do with it. <laughs> and then I meet this big guy with suspenders, and he asks me, how am I doing? I make the mistake of saying fine. And he gets in my, my crap, and next thing you know, we become best friends. And uh, about a month later, I end up going there. I paid for it myself. I become 1996. I get certified in CISM. I paid for it myself. I was one of the first classes uh, to be trained. And then the rest is history. And I've, I've always had a contact with on-site. And then when I become the stress unit, the, the stress cop for the police department, um, I've always had a connection with on-site and the Boston Police Peer Support Unit. And then when later on, I go and end up going volunteering and end up working there. So that was your first, that first initial time with you yeah. going up with your, your gun. You thought it was a class or a course or something that you were going yeah, to go to? I, I thought it was a shooting class on how to you know, defend myself. The yeah. on-site academy, come on. <laughs> yeah. And that was your first experience there at, yeah. at on-site, right? Yeah. And, and then were you, you were sent there from your department? 
Yeah, on the recommendations of Dr. Barry. Uh, yeah, from the trauma that you had experienced. Yeah, the, yeah, the they, they, they couldn't understand what was going on. You know why I was acting the way I was acting. I wasn't acting mad or anything or sad. It's just that you know somebody yeah. seemed something, and they they, they kind of recommended me to go up to onsite. Yeah, and I never and I never left. It's like Hotel California. So tell us a little bit about the progress um, with like alcohol after that time. I know you you sort of going into a you know a whole life experience right with with on site and going back maybe multiple times but you also had uh, a thing with alcohol and you know that probably took you back there again but share with us like how you were able to perform on your job or were you and um with alcohol were you were you abusing it what was your behaviors what was your demeanor your attitude on the job while experiencing PTSD? Yeah. For me, I never drank on the job. I was always respectful of the job. I never drank a drug because that was another part of the culture. Um, I did drink to go to sleep. I drank, drank to kill the pain. Um, and I think I drank to kill the pain. And I look back, um, it was definitely what I did. I mean, I wasn't, I'd go to a bar. I wasn't a fall down drunk. I, I, was, uh, I wasn't an angry drunk. I think I was that guy that went home that killed you know, a box of wine. I killed a bottle of Tito's. Uh, I was definitely a serial serial killer because I'd kill two ball, uh, boxes of Captain Crunch at the same setting. Um, uh, I'm trying on my humor. I'm working, I'm working on this. Um, I, I, he's, he's smiling. He's yeah, smiling. I am. I'm trying. And yeah. uh, so, and, and, and finally, what happened was, and I'm not proud about it. I it was, uh, I I knew I needed help. Um, and it's been 11 years I've got under my belt. And uh, I kind of reached out to the Boston Police Port Unit, which I was always a part of in one way or another. And ironically, the counselor there had worked with my biological dad, and he filled in a lot of pieces that I didn't have. And I just started going to meetings. I detoxed myself, which is I don't recommend to anyone. Um, and November, uh, March 24th, um, was my last drink. And I, I put the plug in the jug, and I'm not going to say it was easy. Um, but I am, I'm not going to say I'm never going to drink again, but I, I go to a meeting every day and I believe in the program. Yeah. Mm. Can I ask you elaborate a little bit on that when you said, um, you know, I didn't drink at a job. I was respectful of that and, and the whole thing, but I, I went home and drank to, to go to sleep, but also to, to take away the pain. Can you yeah. go into that a little bit? Like what, what yeah. does that describe that? Because yeah. I've heard when that. A couple of times again, my, and there's a connection too because I, I had a, a beautiful English bulldog, and that was you know because relationships wouldn't last the longest. I think you know I'd go six, seven months with a relationship, uh, a year with somebody I was dating, and then they they had enough of me because I was married to the job. I was I was really focused on the job. I wasn't focused on anything else. I loved the job to the point where it it, it was my life, which I don't recommend you know for anyone. You have to have the balance. I learn now. Um, but I would go home after a bad, you know, this is after the, like, you know, on, I'd go to the, the choir practice, but I was cautious of how much to drink because I, you know, even though you get a badge, you know, you kind of hit things on the way home. You got to be careful. Yeah. So uh, I was one to always be cautious of what I drank. I, I kind of was there more for the food because I like to eat, but I would go home and I made sure I had a ball over there and I had to sit there with my bulldog and it was kind of sad and I'd drink to pass out and I'd get up at six and rinse, repeat, go to a detail um uh, go go into court and, and and go to work and it was my existence and, and everything for a long time i revolved around was alcohol 
all my yeah. social events. I was a professional mourner. I went to every police firefighter's funeral. And I'm going to tell you, a lot of it had to do with the, the booze that was being served. It had nothing to do with being there. The, you know, yeah, paying the respects is one thing. But, you know, when you realize how much alcohol has control of you, um, when you come out of the fog, it's it's amazing yeah. how crazy that disease is. Yeah. You mentioned that you, you were sent for help, right? But it sounds like the department didn't really know exactly what was going on with you. They, they just wanted you, right? Like they just wanted you um, to maybe go to someone that could help figure it out. What level of awareness did, did you have yourself? Like did you understand that, uh, that you were suffering from traumatic reactions, that you were experiencing PTSD? Yeah. And, and, and was it the same with the alcohol? Like I understand you were hiding it like I don't want to get in trouble, but were you able, did, did you have a level of awareness that uh, this may be a result or a consequence of, of suffering and that it may be a bigger problem than just getting in trouble? I honestly, I felt like a loser because I couldn't handle my alcohol and I couldn't mm. handle, I couldn't handle the stress of the job because that was the old culture. Yeah. And I did, I felt like a, you, oh man, if somebody finds out that I, I got to stop drinking or I can't handle this because I see these guys in the job, but here's the thing. And I wrote about it in the book of, of the heroes that were passed. Um, I read about them, these guys that were larger than life, but they all, they all drank and they all didn't take care of themselves. Yeah, and we're talking, and and, and I felt really, for a long time, felt like I was not a good cop because I can't handle my booze and I can't suck it up by the cop. I'm not a, I mean, I I felt you know, like a lot of officers do that if I mentioned that I got a problem, I'm going to be on the rubber gun squad and they're going to mm -hmm. put me out in seventy two percent and I'm going to lose my career. Yeah, man. And and, and, and and turn it was me getting in an act, you know, me getting hurt, but that was the hottest part i didn't have any aware i was i was clueless yeah. i knew something was happening but i thought it was me that i, I wasn't strong enough to handle it yeah and sounds yep, like some you know. shame in there joe oh, a lot of shame oh oh my god yes embarrassment uh, what am my family going to find out that you know i'm going to this this place for mental health yeah i'm supposed to be a cop i mean i'm supposed to have an s on my chest you know I mean, yeah you can't do this you know yeah so, absolutely yeah so, like, when you're thinking about, like, you were looking at other f other officers and they were taking care of themselves, but um, there was probably a lot of those other officers, too, that were very good at hiding. Um, oh, huge. Um, right? Yeah, we, we do a great job at hiding. We don't tell people anything. And as you know, it's one of our problems with su the suicide. Yeah. Cops don't, uh, we don't say anything to anybody. We're not like the civilian population. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, I've been 11 years sober and it's amazing how many people still don't will tell you, I never realized you drank that much. Hmm. You know, I, to this day, I don't, I never knew you drank that much. You know, I remember going away to a, a police week, which is, you know, it's a, you know, we one I did in Washington and it's just a drunk fest too. And the first time some of the younger officers have seen me in action, like they couldn't believe how much alcohol I was consuming. Yeah. Cause they didn't see it. Yeah. You, know? you were good at hiding it. it yeah yeah so tell us a little bit about like getting in there when you actually were able to confront um i mean we've read it in the book but i want to i'm i'm bringing up this for our, you know people listening out there yeah. you know when were you able to sort of really embrace healing like a start of healing what it obviously 
wasn't very early on, right? From your first time going to Onsite Academy, right? No. So let's get into that. Like, let's get into when did you start being honest with yourself? I was, you know, I was honest with myself with the PTS, the um, right after that, after first, you know, after was my first visit to Onsite, I was going to a Wednesday night stretch meeting in, in Boston PD, but I didn't realize I had a problem with alcohol. Right? I didn't want to accept the fact. It wasn't until about 11 years ago, probably my first year in just to sobriety, really first and second year in where I really started to wake up. I was going through the motions my first year. I'll be honest with you. Just going to meetings. I was in a fog. Um, my feet were share, still tapping. Yes. Share with us, for our listeners, that detail of what that, what that was like. Yeah. It, it, you're just listening to what they have to say and your brain is the static, constant static. You, 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 you. We call it white nightclubbing. And I remember just clinching my fist and going for a walk at all hours, just calling my sponsor, just get me through so I don't have to drink. And I'm, I'm doing this without having a drink. How do I go to bed? I didn't want to take any meds. I, um, and you, and if you know about the book, you know that I've been in some major league accidents. I'm reconstructed yeah. from the waist down. Yeah. So I'm dealing with pain. So those first two years, I relied heavily on my sponsor and my and my program. Um, and then it was like a switch. Um, one day, all of a sudden, the static stops. I couldn't. I probably was at a meeting in Boston, and I noticed that my foot started tapping, and I started smiling again. And it just just this, this weight come off to me. But it took about two years. And, uh, and then I realized I, you know, um, I had, to, I had to retire at that point. I was being forced to retire. So there was all this other craziness going on in my life that I knew I had to get my shit together as far as dealing with the alcohol, yeah. because there's no way I'm going to go forward. There's no way I was going to survive if I didn't take care of my alcohols. What do you mean survive? Survive as far as I drink myself to death. I oh. think I would drink myself to death or I'd get myself into an accident. Uh, I was never suicidal. I, that I, I've, Never thought of, I thought of that, but I would have, I wasn't taking care of myself. I, I could see myself just having a heart attack or, or just doing something stupid, like getting walking in front of a, a bus or something, because yeah. that's what my alcohol is and that's where it was taking me. Right. Um, so like unhealthy, so I, unhealthy habits, like healthy oh habits, like yes. right? unhealthy. Oh yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the, the, just, just the not working out. I let myself go. I, it wasn't performing what I was taught in the military. Um, and it was scary. I mean, it's scary retiring, not having a purpose. Yeah. It's all I ever know. Yeah. Um, and, uh, that's how I reinvented myself. I, and I think that's the key. Yeah. Um, so going through, so, going uh, through all of that, right. And, you know, starting a healing process of, of going to AA, right. Yeah. And, and that switch, you described it as a switch. Yeah. All of a sudden that twitch wasn't there and you started smiling and you started, it was obviously very noticeable to you um, that there was a change, some form of change happening. Was there, in the department, was there support there for you? Was it known? Share no. with us, like, share with us that. No, the, the, that place was, at that point in time, I was, I was, I was, I had a good chief at the time, joke, this Chief Caffarelli. He was a larger-than-life character Marine, um, but he didn't fit politically with the, the administration. Um, I don't want to get into politics, but we had a swing from a, a combat veteran that was the mayor that was pro-police to this, the, this whack job that came in and 
pushed Joe out the door. And and the, the but Joe supported me. I got to say one thing: the, at the end, Joe did support me. Right? The chief supported me. Um, I had some great people around me. Um, what do you mean the chief supported you? What what? I had a great chief. He, he he was my neighbor. He understood what I was going through. I was honest. I told him what I was dealing with. Yeah. I went to him and said, "Hey, listen, I, I got a problem. I need help." And he 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 had my back. Um, but as far as sharing it with the rest of the department, it was kind of kind of a blessing in disguise that I had to go out on an injury. So I was dealing with the injury and my alcoholism at the same time. Yeah. So my department really didn't get to see the change in me. Okay. I, mean, I should say that they, they did for about a year, but didn't see the whole change in me. And it, that's what bothers me. I wish I had more time to, to be a better person for that police department. Yeah. That, sure. That's something that's a regret that I got. So you were out on an injury, right? Yeah. Jordan, as you said, you went to the chief to get, and he, and he supported you. He, he described it as, he had my back, right? Yeah. So the injury, tell us a little bit about that. I mean, obviously... Um, you're dealing with now recovering, right? Yeah. Dealing with um, going to AAA, getting help for alcoholism, um, and then also, you know, dealing with trauma. But then you then you have some major incidents happen. You know, yeah. want to you want to share with our listeners? Yeah, uh, well, as far as the 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 you know, the, it happened was was the motorcycle accident happens in two thousand and. I was coming home from a national guy drill. The department had me on administrative leave. I had a, a bad administration back then that was fighting and uh, I had beat them. This is the guy that was making fun of my reports and uh, he yeah. wanted to be chief. And uh, we ended up beating him and I was coming home from a guy drill and I got hit by a drunk, ironically from behind dragged 45 feet. I was reconstructed waist down. Um, a new administration comes in. I was able to go back to work and you can't make this up. And, uh, I'm not back to work a day and I dispatched the death of uh, my friend, James Hightaffer, who was a canine guy. He has a massive heart attack. Um, wow. um, so I dispatched that. I deal with that. And then a month later, I get hit by a car again. Uh, I was with oh, my buddy, my, 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 my partner, my buddy Todd, who was the union president. I end up hearing an accident. I go, I'll take care of it. And I'm walking across Squire Road and I get hit again. Um, but this time I break the knee, uh, the tibia plateau, and I'm six months out of work again um when i come back to work they had bu bubble wrap for me so, so the guys were good sense of humor um but then i kept re-injuring over the years i kept because we come down on that knee when you handcuff people you bring them down you come on your right knee and uh the final one was uh, about 12 years ago i had come down on the knee chasing a guy in a stolen car and the kid had just planted himself and punched me when i grabbed him i come down on the knee and i re-injured and uh then it was just I was limping and I was I was hurt and I knew that if I went to the doctors they're going to put me out and my doctor didn't want me to go back to work my orthopedic guy he said one more injury you're going to be paralyzed wow. so um, finally Joe called me to the office and the chief was like listen you got to go see the doc I know this is the end of you and it was the hottest thing I had to do uh, I did not want to leave that that job but I couldn't work a desk so the mayor uh, Mayor Dan Rizzo at the time was an amazing guy who's uh, who's combat vet he he knew he knew what i was going through and he supported me um and then i just had to support myself right i, I had to get yeah. off my rear end and do what i had to do for myself which is the hottest thing to do yeah i mean a couple of serious physical injuries that um you know in reading the book it was it was pretty impactful the part where 
uh, you know, they, they thought you had passed, right? They announced to the department, um, you know, the, your fellow officers thought that you had died in that accident just to um, kind of display for our audience how severe it is and, and you paint a picture of the mindset that you had to get into to, to recover. You, you were very determined. Um, how important do you think your mindset was to that, to the physical recovery process, committing to physical therapy? And uh, I'm wondering if you draw any parallels to your journey of emotional recovery back to health and wellness. Yeah. Uh, again, this is huge. I had a fallback. I had a great, my, my partner at the time, uh, she's amazing. Both of my partners, Lynn, Lynn Rivoli and, and Captain, uh, Lieutenant Lynn Rivoli and Captain Amy O'Hara, uh, they were in my corner. They used to, you know, Lynn would pick me up and I would walk Riviera Beach in crutches. I pulled, I pulled myself out of the bootstraps. I, that military cop came out. Yeah. And I, I, and you know what I'm saying? I, there's, I went down to 170 pounds and I walked that beach. It took me all day. I would walk it in crutches and that's no, no joke. And then I got to the point where I was walking white stadium in East Boston. Um, they, Glenn would pick me up. Um, I forced myself to get back to work, yeah. uh, but mentally it was, uh, you know, you remember I couldn't drink back then because one of the, yes. the things I forgot to mention was I, I severed my liver which was a blessing in disguise. Mm. So I couldn't drink during this whole rehab process. Um, I spent, they wanted me to do six months of Shaughnessy rehab up in uh, um, Swampscott. So I did like two months. And I remember my guys coming in and my, my, my brothers and sisters were cases of beer. It's a funny story. They had me in with an actual cardinal, this religious cardinal guy, Catholic priest. And they had to move me out of there because my guys were, you know, they thought I was still partying. Meanwhile, I can't even move. Yeah. Um, but my mindset was, I'm going back to work. Not only was I going back to work, but I was going to buy another motorcycle because that's how sick I am. And I did both. And uh, it was very emotional when I was able to walk through those doors of the, the, the police station um, mm. to realize what I, what had happened to me. Um, and I did, I did buy a BMW bike. I, I couldn't ride it. It was just the pain was too much. But I did accomplish those two goals. Yeah. So emotional from... Not only, you know, of what happened to you, but also what you've accomplished to get back in that door. Yeah, I had a second yeah. chance at doing, going to this. Uh, in, I never thought I'd be leaving the job early. I love that job. I love the people I worked with. I mean, I had my issues with some of the the, the knuckleheads there, but yeah, for the most part, that place is an amazing police department, amazing people. Yeah. It was wow. a lot of fun. Yeah. It sounds like it. Um, yeah. So and you know, we, and I say that because I'm on police departments all over the state now, and I see a lot of micromanagement, a lot of people that I'm like, this is the best job in the world. I mean, where did you work prior? I, had, I said this to a young kid from my job, and he goes, I worked at Staples. If you don't like the job, stop complaining. Go back and work in Staples. Yeah. This, this, this is a great job. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So. Yeah. So, so Joe, let's lead into, into um, on-site, what you're doing yeah. there as a peer support. Tell us. Tell us all about that because this is so important, um, you know, really why we're, um, you know, why we're doing this is, is to make sure that, you know, our listeners hear loud and clear that we want to talk about it and, and they should talk about it. They're not weak, you know, when they don't talk about it, which is always the fear, I think, within whether whatever um category they work in whether it be firefighter police officer emt dispatch whatever they whatever they might do if first responder doesn't want to talk about it because they don't want to be the weak one that they can't handle whatever's 
calls they're, they're going they're going out on excuse me so um you want to let them know that they're strong when they go and get help they're helping their families they're helping themselves they're helping the children their grandchildren and they're also able to you know still be able to do their job and and lead a healthy life in, in, in a great way just by going and getting help and and being honest with themselves so share with us what you do on-site academy does i know because you're, you're very very involved there um share with us what all about that all about that stuff yeah, it, the hardest thing you can do is the hardest thing for, I think, for anybody, a first responder. I think it's a little bit easier, Jay, maybe for the fire service. Because the fire service, when they come after, when you guys come out after a bad job, a call, um, they pretty much defuse and talk about it right away at the kitchen table. Yeah. So you got to leg up. You're, you're, you're used to talking. We're independent, us and DOC, we're independent contractors, most of us, um, where we, we just go in that cruiser and we sulk and we drive around by ourselves. And we're fearful losing that gun because that's our livelihood, right? That's our, we, we can't afford to lose that ticket. Now with the post certification, um, God forbid somebody says, you know, when, when, you know, and my fear is that some of these chiefs are going to weaponize mental health to get rid of some of the people. And I see that yeah. and, and these people need to be, and I think it's going to be addressed that, um, that you know, you send somebody for a fitness for duty to get help, not to punish them. Right. Yeah. And that's one of my biggest fears right now that with some of these chiefs, their thinkings. And I, and I, you know me, I'll I'll go head to toe with any of these guys, uh, you know, to, to debate them on this issue. But f- to pick up that phone to ask for help is the hardest thing in the world to do. Um, but to realize that you're normal, that this these jobs for you to do the job you need a, a clinician and a team on speed dial today yeah you just can't do this job and we Absolutely. need culturally competent when i mean culturally competent uh nothing against the the young person like you know you, you, you know our first responders that will become clinicians we've got a leg up right we, we we've got the business style we understand it but you just can't go to dock in the box and ask for mental help as a first responder, you have to go to somebody, you know, you wouldn't take your, your, your Rolls Royce to a Ford dealer. Then, you know, you have to find the, these people and they're out there. So what on site is just a special place. It's just, it's hard to imagine these two angels that started this place. And I mean, they're, they're truly angels and, and everybody that, that is lucky enough to be around them and work with them. Um, it's an infectious, it, it, environment because mm. our whole purpose is to help our first responders and they are first responders dr Duggan is a first responder um so when i get involved with them um i initially go up there it wasn't for alcoholism my chief set me up there for my identity and that's the truth he says listen you're gonna have a hard time retiring from the job i want you to go up to onsite and learn how to be a civilian again i'm never going to be a civilian so i go up there and i end up dealing with my assault which is a big big plus that comes out and then um what am i going to do with my life i ended up opening up a uh, hot dog cart and i f- something i always wanted to do I, I, I proved i could do a business but i found myself counseling people on the side of the road mm. and oh, so i love that and Hayden, what I was doing was I was volunteering. I think that's where I first met Jay. I think I was volunteering up there two days a week. 
And then he said, Hey, listen, you, you got to go back to school. I can't have you volunteering. You, uh, you know, I, I got, you know, I wouldn't take a dime for them for a long time. And I finally went back to school and I was lucky enough to, to do my internship um, and get my hours under Dr. Duggan, which is like, you know, it's like going to Harvard for me. I mean, I'm learning for the best. And then I finally got put on staff there. And, uh, and I, like I said, and what I do up there now is, um, and I'm also working with the, you know, I, I help out with the two police unions. Uh, the NEPPA now is really my main focus. I'm with the FOP, but uh, I work with, um, like I said, I work with Jane McKean. I work with her up at Onsite, and I work with her over at NEPPA. Um, so, um, like I said, I was just out in Rutland, Vermont, um, overseeing some of the issues with that line of duty death. So um, I didn't want to go back for the, the mental health social worker's license because it, number one, my GI benefits were, were expended, but I just couldn't see doing another 6,000 hours worth of intern. So the easiest way for me to do it was to go in to get the drug and alcohol counselor the license. Um, and that was only 4,000 hours. <laughs> so, so it was so easy then, for then, you to be able to do that. It wasn't easy, but it was. <laughs> I, I wanted to do something to get some sort of letters under my name. But yeah, honestly, it's just an amazing place where it's a, it's a, it's a retreat. It's a, it's just, it's this place where you can talk about anything and get rid of the garbage and realize that you're not alone because you're there with other first responders, and that's the secret. The secret is the pair work up there, the clinical alliance. But this, the magic happens you know, after, after everyone goes home, um, that's when, you know, the magic happens up there. That's when the, the, the real gift happens with, among each other. Um, and I've made some good friends, right, Jay? We've, yeah, absolutely. The place is amazing. And I highly recommend it, uh, you know, to people, you know, just any step, any first step, even if talking to your, your best friend, it, 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 talking to someone is better than talking to no one. Yes. Absolutely. I, I hear that loud and clear. Um, I want to talk a little bit, get back into when you were saying, you know, a police officer, um, you know, if you're struggling or you talk about you're struggling um, or fear of telling somebody you have that fear that your gun is going to be taken away. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, as you, as you refer to, he's sort of on the, in the Dave Del Papa era, like as he's talking about the rubber gun squad. We interviewed a chief from Abington um, Police Department. He's a new chief, a new chief there, about a year and a half there, um, in the department where uh, Alex, our son, um, lost his life. He, Alex was working in Abington at the time, not serving um, under under Chief Del Papa. It was a, a different chief at the time. But Chief Papa came in and, and talked to us about all of that type of stuff, the the choir practice, the rubber gun squad. Um, and, you know, it was fear that you, you didn't want to tell anybody about um, what you were going through or struggling after um, whatever instance that you were after seeing. Um, you, you just told them you were okay. Um, if someone did check up in on you, um, no, I'm okay. And, and... You know, you didn't want to lose your job. You didn't want to be sitting down on a desk anymore. But I do believe that, um, you know, fire, um, fire EMS, um, they see, uh, for me, it's it's all first responders. Um, yeah, definitely because you do have a gun and that's your identity or part of your identity as a police officer. But I do believe that all first responders um, 
yeah, even though firemen, as Jay talked about it with one of our other interviewees, is that they can sit around the table and and sort of debrief about it or talk about whatever call they were on. But there's also honesty comes into play mm. about how it's really affecting. So when you were talking about that, what hit me was was honesty. And I don't think that... Um, I know that not all of them are honest about really, really how they're struggling. Like, really. They might, you know, do it because that's the norm around the kitchen table um, that they, you know, talk about it and debrief. But I don't think they're totally honest about in really what's, how much they're struggling. And, and the alcohol comes into play and uh, other substance use to like um, sleeping pills maybe to help them sleep at night. And um, so I just want to emphasize that it's all first responders are struggling from it. And, mm-hmm. and yeah, struggling from it. And just being honest, like being honest. I really feel like putting it all out on the table is where the honesty starts um, for someone to start healing. And not just like saying, oh, well, I talked about it today, but really not addressing, say, that they, but they still had to drink themselves to sleep to get asleep to block out the image of what they were after seeing earlier on that day. Um, so I just thought I wanted to hit nail on that, that it is a, an issue. Suicide amongst first responders is still the number one mm-hmm. killer um, in first response in general, um, and police officers big time, and, and then firemen, EMS, um, dispatchers, it's a number one. And, and, correct, and our, corre- our corrections people are taking and it. Corrections too, yes. And, and we can't we can't overlook too. And this is something we talk at on site. The other numbers that are staggering, in, and I think I wrote about it in the book, is the the cardio issues, uh, and and the cancer issues, right? And we we know now the work that Dr. Mike Hamrock has done in Boston is legendary. That the um, the stress response is triggering cancer. It's the the average age for a first responder having a major cardio event is 46 years old for a first responder, 45 for a female, 46 for a male. And those statistics are, are, are so we look at the suicide as number one, but we, we've got to start looking at cancer and we've got to start looking at cardio issues. So now how do we address that? Well, yeah, nobody wants to listen to me. You know, I got to go in the gym. I got to eat well. How do you eat well at two o'clock in the morning? When the yeah. only thing that's open is Seven Eleven, mm-hmm. you know uh, how do you how do you eat well? Oh, you can take your lunch. You're not going to take your lunch. I mean, come on, let's be honest. How do you how do you stay fit when you got administrations that don't want you to use the gym? They look nice, but they don't want you in there on shift. So until we change the culture of leadership in this country, um, and and I and listen, I'm a union guy f- through and through, but we've got some good chiefs, and you mentioned one of them. Um, you know, we've got some dynamic chiefs that are out there. They're doing great work, but until we change the leadership model and, and they start changing their way of thinking that we're not the, the, the patrol guys and the privates are not the enemy that we gotta, we're going to still have these issues. Yes. And until guys, you know, I'm sorry. And I'll debate any chief that's out there just because I, I didn't go to the FBI Academy doesn't mean I don't know what I'm talking about. Yeah. And I'm getting sick of it that these, these chiefs, They'll go listen to somebody and talk about wellness, but they're not talking on onsite. They're not talking to Boston PD. They're talking to another chief. And I'm sorry. That's, it's a passion of mine. You yes. want to talk to somebody, talk to me and Jay. We'll tell you how it's supposed to be done. Mm. So, 
Me too. I'm sorry. Can you add me I'm in sorry there about too? The it's, it's passion for me. Absolutely, brother. Uh, absolutely. Uh, and we totally hear you. We That's exactly the discussion that we had with uh, the chief that we did have on was, starts with you right at the top. Um, and you need to bring that down to your guys. I mean, you can put, he did say, we can put any programs or multiple programs in place, but it's we need to follow up with that, right? And let them know, have them believe that we are there to support them. And the only way that they can start believing is for it to actually be put into action in the departments. Let them see it every day. And um, let's, let's talk about that. What would you love to see happen within the departments? Mm. Like, what well, would you love to see happen? Where would you, where would you like to start? If you, if you were, where would you like to start? Well, yeah, and this is this is the truth. I think I had this conversation with Karen Solomon one time. First off, we spend more money. These chiefs spend more money, and I, I don't want be, to let this be a thing beating up on the chiefs, but we they spend more money on challenge coins and T-shirts and coffee mugs than they do on office of wellness. I mean, they, and it's the truth. Yeah, it drives me out of the mind when I, we talk about this other idiots idiocy that they're doing. They're they're having their offices use the insurance to pay for their wellness checks. Well, when you have insurance to pay for the, the wellness checks, we have to put a diagnosis of the, the lowest diagnosis is an adjustment disorder. So why would you want your offices to, to go get a, an adjustment disorder when all they're doing is to do a check-in from the, you know, to, to make sure their life's okay. And, and I see these chiefs that are, that are so money conscious. and like, Hey, listen, the bottom line is we, you know, if I had to do it, and if I had to work with it, I'd have a budget of at least probably 100000 at least, depending on the size of the department, uh, uh, for wellness, where I would have at least three to four times a year with a vetted clinician, like, like some of the agencies are doing. Um, yeah. that we, they can go in and do a wellness check, have a drug and alcohol counselor like myself on standby, mm-hmm. have a marriage counselor, cultural competent on standby, um, and have the on-site on standby, but I would encourage. One thing I would have would really do is encourage these offices to force them. You see somebody who hasn't taken vacation, that's a trigger. That's a sign. Hey, listen, yeah. why are you working a hundred details? What type of financial? Because you, you know, financial substances of use or relationships. What financial situation do you put yourself into? You're always in uniform. Because you know the other thing is lack of sleep, right? We we heard Colonel Grossman talk about this a couple of weeks ago, uh, right? Yeah. I quit coffee because of that, Jay. <laughs> I need caffeine, um, and I'm sleeping amazingly. My life's changed because I gave up caffeine. But you know, we have chiefs that are freaking out that their offices they're forcing offices to work 18 hours a day, and then when the officer wants to shut his eyes behind the station, they want to suspend him. Yeah. I'm sorry, but you're putting this, you know, it's, it's worse than doing cocaine and heroin together with, with the lack of sleep. You know, I remember coming back, praying, get me, get, just get me back to the station because I was so tired. So until we address that, that it's okay if you have an area for guys to stand down for a couple of minutes or you can go to the boss and say, listen, I'm going to have my radio on, but I'm going to be over there. It's going to be, it's because why would you put your offices in that position? No. But we're doing it every single day in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Yeah. It's it's dangerous. It's dangerous. Yeah, it is. And and there's, um, you know, the, the lifestyle contributes to everything that you were talking about, the heart attacks, the cancer, and obviously the, the post-traumatic stress and, and the reactions that accompany it, accompany that, um, and the behavioral changes that follow it. 
whether it's alcohol abuse or however, however uh, a person tends to cope. And some of these chiefs um, have begun to, to come to that understanding. And I think that we are seeing some change. And um, I, I believe that other ones are going to come along. But that is absolutely um, where it has to start. And we talked about, like, you know, the, the kitchen table at, at the fire department. And that's, there's an opportunity there, right? Yes. That's a place that I did see change because, I mean, there's no, I've been on both sides of that. There's nothing worse than being in a room full of people and feeling completely alone and isolated because of the fear to say, wait a minute, I'm having these effects uh, based on what I do for a living and the job that I love. I can't speak up about it, Right. So you see that change start to take place where we begin to debrief um, around that table. Nothing but positive outcomes. I believe that there is nothing but positive outcomes to having these conversations everywhere that they can take place. And once the chiefs begin to recognize and the administrators that the benefits are cultural, the benefits are to the community, and the benefits are also to the budget as well. One way or another, people react to trauma, and they always have been. So we call it other things. This man or woman's having problems, and this is how we're going to deal with them. And now they go, administratively processed out. And I don't say that uh, shaming anyone, right? That's the best they could do, just like the best I could do for a period of time was sit at, a kitchen, sit at that table and not take advantage of the opportunity to, to speak with people that might care about me. Um, but there is a better way, and, and it's the way that you're describing and um, I look forward to seeing seeing that change over the next. It's know, and it's happening. It We're seeing it. Yeah, we are. As we yeah. are seeing it as we speak, we see leadership come in that come through the ranks that been through on site um, and been through the program. Yeah. We're seeing we're seeing it, but it's it's really not happening as quick as I'd like to see it because Likewise. we're still having our suicides and we still don't have our deaths. Yeah, but it is happening. Yeah, and and it's again, it's like getting more and more people on board with talking out about it. I think the only way to to make it happen, make it normal, um, to be talking within departments is being open. One person, that's all it'll take. One person to say, "Hey, I'm not really doing too good. I had to drink myself to sleep last night. It just might plant a seed." And someone else to say, mm, I'm going through the same thing too. Yeah. And then when they start seeing someone else going through a process of healing, they're no longer drinking, they're much more alert, they're able to be more productive on the job, all of that type of stuff. It's a win-win when we talk about it. It's a win. It's a win for it, everybody. It's preventive maintenance. If, if we can yeah. get to a – if an officer, a firefighter, a first responder is comfortable – talking to a culturally competent clinician it doesn't the problems don't come into the job right that's the, that's the truth of the matter is right if you if you get if we're able to make that connection and have that dialogue where that they know just like you get issued a gun you're going to issue an appointment to a therapist because the navy seals do it the special forces do it and we do calls after calls after calls with them. Why shouldn't a first responder do it? Because right. I gotta tell you right now, we we know we're gonna we know if somebody's having a bad day, they'll call and reach out instead of letting that fester and fester and then it becomes the issue. And that's where the budget savings comes into play through that entire Huge. changing yes. culture. And now what do you have? You have an, a more experienced first responder 
not someone who's suffering from emotional injuries. Um, beautiful. Yeah, well, listen, $516 to do a 16-panel blood test for drug and alcohol, and you're finding out after the fact that the person's got a problem, now you're sending them, send them to a 30-day detox, if you're lucky, yeah. if they don't quit, right? If they don't quit, right. now you're going to discipline them. Why the heck would you want to spend less than $200 for a wellness check-in and get ahead of the curve? Yeah. And, but yet we have no problem sending it drives me up a wall where they send people to these trainings that they think it's wonderful for, for this this gun, that gun, this training. Um, you know, civilians get also the civilian population. They're putting civilian clinicians in these stations, and we're doing mental health ambulances, and we're giving the community millions of dollars with the contracts for mental health. What what are we doing for first responders? Mm. Yeah. Think about it. I mean, yes, luckily we, we've got some funding for onsite this year, but how many years have we had a fight? I mean, no problem. Joe, Joe down the street needs a mental health clinician. Okay, fine. Hire her, you know, I'll get this one in there. But when it comes to hiring for our own agencies are doing it, come on. Yes, we can do absolutely. A job. And they know, they, they know you take you, you're on this job. You're a police officer. You're a firefighter. You're anywhere in first response that you're experiencing or witnessing trauma every day. It's inevitable that you're going to experience effects, negative effects of, of that, right? So why not then support the, they know it, right? They have all the data. So why not put all these things in place? Have clinicians come in every couple of months. I, I totally agree with you. Well, be proactive. It's, it's, it's very simple, okay? And it was described to me by a, a, I had a, a mole that was in the Chief of Police uh, Association meeting. These, <laughs> some of these chiefs don't want to admit the fact that there might be a problem with their, in their agency. Yeah. And, 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 and they might not have a problem. Somebody might be a bad call. It doesn't reflect, it should reflect bad on their leadership. But let's face it, they're so worried about somebody going on a 72% disability. And the truth of the matter is, I had this conversation with the chief, uh, chief a couple of weeks ago. Majority of these officers, 99% of them want to go back to work. Right. They don't want to go in 72%. So I think there's a, there's a big change coming and it's got to start from the top. So, and if I could poke the bear a little bit to get the conversation going, you know me, I, I got a couple of rocks to throw. That's what it's all about, Joe, is just sort of having a conversation, right? And being yeah. able to um, bring it forward that, hey, we're listening. You know what I mean? And we want to we wanna be continuing talking about this every day. I mean, I'm not going to stop. Um, I'm not. I'm not going to stop. And I know this huh? guy here is not going to stop. And I'm so, going to make sure this podcast gets posted everywhere I can get. And and the same with the information that's out there. Yes, you know? absolutely. My, fo- my phone's on 24-7. Just pick up the phone and call. No. Absolutely. And how can people reach you if, if they wanted yeah. to reach you? I put up my put phone number, 978-408-5279, 978-408-5279. I don't listen to my, my boss where he says I'm supposed to have boundaries and shut the phone off. <laughs> um, um, he knows better to tell me that. My civilian counterpart, they do a better job of shutting the phone off. Um, but I, I, listen, I was there for my brothers and sisters um, to take a bullet if I had to uh, to put my life in front of it, I'm not going to change. And it's funny, I got a, I got a good friend of mine who's a therapist, um, Tracy Parsons. She's one of the best relationships therapists. Uh, um, and she says to me, 
I'm not going to tell first responder not to stop working. I'm going to try to tell you to get well so you can still work and you don't die of a heart attack because yeah. you guys don't have an on and off switch. And that's you know really the difference between us and the civilian world is that we don't have any boundaries. We'll go to the end of the earth to protect somebody. You know what? I'm not going to change. So, well, God bless. Thank you so much for saying that. I mean, I think I would want to be your... I would want you to be protecting me and have my back for sure. Um, but having said that, um, we're going to wrap it up today. Jim, right, awesome. Right? Thank you. This was awesome. And I, I really appreciate it, Joe. I really enjoyed talking to you, open, honest conversation. That's what we're all about uh. here on Hope Beyond the Badge. Um, I know my, fr- my friend Jay here is um, really appreciative of having you here too. He's going to probably end up with a little, little thank you himself. But we will get this out here. Um, out on the airways. I know there's going to be a lot of people listening um, to this. And, I, you know, there just might be someone that'll hear what you're saying. You're also a, a recovering, you know, it, been through a healing process yourself. And, um, and I love that you sort of, you know, give us that information on where you can start. And uh, yeah, I'll, see you guys, I'll see you guys in Braintree, I think, uh, the, right, the 26th of August. Yes, on our walk, yeah. our, our uh-huh. first responder suicide awareness walk. We're yes, gonna, we're, we're, I think onsite we're going to support that. We voted to support, have a table there. Oh, excellent. So. We love that. We absolutely yeah. love that. Yeah, it's in Braintree. So, uh, yeah, we'll be there too. Good stuff, Joe. It has been an we'll absolute privilege uh, speaking with you and getting to know you. Um, so, thank you so much for coming on and doing Stay this. Here, brother. Continue to keep both of you, keep up the good work. We're doing it. Yeah. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Appreciate it. All of our episodes have a message. Today's episode is no exception, and we believe the message is strong. Joe speaks about childhood trauma, how some incidents on the job have affected him. Accidents, injuries, learning disability, alcoholism, his life as a Revere cop. Joe also speaks about peer support. He suggests changes that could be made within departments that would help lessen the stigma experienced by the men and women of those departments. Joe highlights the benefits of approaching first responder mental health proactively rather than reactively. Now, to all first responders listening, if you notice that a coworker is behaving differently or struggling after a difficult call, consider opening the door to a conversation. Let them know that you care. Till next time. Till next time.